potassium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thorium. Well, welcome and aboard. And as usual, we're going to kick off the show with a couple of questions. Hopefully, we'll get some rapid answers here. The first one, a bronze statue at Brightwater in New Zealand depicts a young boy carrying a book with the title Arithmetic Primer. The statue is surrounded by three types of trees, the Totatara of New Zealand, the Maple of Canada, and the Oak of England. Who is that boy? And why were those trees chosen? If you know the answer to that, 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. That's our first question. I also have another one for you, which is uh, uh, actually left over from uh, last week. We didn't get a proper answer to that. Why is burning sugarcane bagasse, that's the stuff that is left over after the sugar has been extracted, why is burning that more friendly to the environment than burning petroleum-based fuel. So bagasse is the stuff that is left over once the sugar has been extracted from the sugar cane. It is combustible. And why is it more environmentally friendly to burn that than to burn petroleum-based fuels? So there are the two questions for you to get started on today. Lots of interesting stuff coming up on the show today. I want to talk to you about uh, why birds don't really exist. And uh, I'm not going to talk very much today, if at all, about COVID. Because things are changing so quickly. And, and uh, you know, I've spent the last two and a half years uh, trying to be up to date on everything here. And, and you kind of eventually come to the conclusion that nobody knows what they're talking about, including me. So let's just leave COVID alone for now because things are changing too quickly and uh, we'll just see what happens. All right, but uh, that doesn't mean that we don't have some interesting stuff to talk about here today. Of course we do. And I wanna tell you a little bit about Bertie as Queen Victoria's eldest son was known. Of course, he would become the Prince of Wales and eventually King Edward VII. And uh, he wasn't a very good student, much to the dismay of his parents. And of course, they tried to give him an education. They tried to groom him into becoming a, a, a good king. But uh, he kind of resisted. He didn't want to work very much. He didn't want to study very much at all. And uh, uh, they decided that they would send him on a, a tour of various kind of educational institutions to see if they could spark some sort of excitement in the young lad. And in 1859, when Bertie was uh, 18 years old, they sent him for a tour of the chemistry labs at Edinburgh University. And here he was hosted by Professor Lyon Playfair. And um, he wanted to excite the young prince by doing one of his favorite demonstrations. So he proceeded to pour some molten lead over the fingers of his assistant. <laughs> you can imagine that that was a pretty impressive thing. And indeed, Bertie was amazed that the man's hand was not scalded. And he actually asked if he could try the experiment. Well, Professor Playfair wanted to make sure that he would not cause any harm to the future King of England. And he instructed him to dip his hand in water, quickly shake off the excess, and then extend the royal fingers. 
and then he proceeded to pour molten lead over them. And the hand that would rule England as King Edward VII from 1901 to 1910 was totally unharmed. Why? Well, this was all due to the Leyden Frost effect. Whether or not uh, King Edward actually remembered this uh, little event uh, is, of course, hard to know, but it is certainly true that he was part of this experiment. All right, so what is this Leyden Frost effect? After graduating as a physician in 1741, Johann Gottlob Leidenfrost went on to teach medicine, physics, and chemistry at the University of Duisburg in Germany. He published a number of scientific papers, including a tract about some qualities of common water, in which he described the effect that would be named after him. So what was that effect? Well, what did Leidendorf observe? He noted that when droplets of a liquid were placed on a surface that was very, very hot, hotter than the boiling point of that liquid, that liquid, instead of instantly evaporating, as you would expect, drops of it skittered across the surface before they actually evaporated. And at a lower temperature, but still above the boiling point of liquid, the droplets immediately vaporized. Well, that was, that was pretty amazing. And uh, Leidendorf uh, did some classic experiments. He took a drop of water, placed it on a polished iron spoon that had been heated over glowing coals, and he discovered that that drop of water actually hovered over the spoon. And it was a spherical globule that lasted for a number of seconds before evaporating. And then he placed a candle behind the drop, and he noted that the light passed between the spoon and the liquid, and it revealed the presence of a thin layer of vapor on which the droplet floated. Well, you may have noted this effect yourself if you've ever done any cooking, because very often cooks who want to know if their frying pan is hot enough before they add the food will sprinkle a little bit of water into the pan. And um, if the uh, pan is hot enough, then instead of evaporating immediately, the water turns into little droplets that skitter back and forth before evaporating. And it's a very interesting phenomenon because uh, this is really the explanation behind the molten lead trick. It works on the same principle. Contact of water with the hot lead forms an insulating layer, and that's what prevents the burn. <clears throat> uh, if you ever watched the Mythbusters, uh, this was one of the episodes that uh, that they looked at. And uh, Adam and Jamie, of course, who do experiments very carefully, so this is not something that you would ever do at home, tested the idea of whether or not you can really uh, dip your fingers into molten lead uh, without doing any harm. <clears throat> and they did demonstrate that this was the case. But they had to heat that lead to 450 degrees Celsius. That's 120 degrees above the lead's boiling point. If they would have done the experiment at a lower temperature, still above the boiling point of lead, they would have been burned. How do they know this? Because, of course, cleverly, they carried out tests first, not with their fingers, but with sausages. And they found that unless the temperature was 450 degrees, the sausage actually burned almost immediately. But when the temperature was raised, 
high enough, they could dip the sausage in there, pluck it out, and there was uh, uh, no burn. Thanks to the light and frost effect, we have this curious phenomenon whereby a higher temperature is less likely to cause harm than a lower one. So uh, it was a very interesting uh, effect. And uh, believe it or not, there is a, a story about this, th this effect, uh, which I thought was maybe a bit far-fetched, but upon checking it out, it turns out to be correct. The, what can be called the oldest light detector system in the world also relies on the light and, uh, light and frost effect. In an ancient ritual used by Bedouin tribes in the Middle East, a member who professes innocence after being charged with a crime is given the chance to prove that he is not guilty. All he has to do is lick a red-hot spoon without blistering his tongue. The idea is that if he is guilty and nervous, his mouth will be dry and the tongue will burn as soon as it touches the hot metal. If he is innocent, there will be enough saliva in his mouth to offer protection via the Leidenfrost effect. This is kind of a char by fire, known as bishchah, and it has been banned by all governments in the Middle East, except apparently that of Egypt, where this ceremony to discover guilt is still performed. Well, I don't think it is extremely reliable. I think a good liar can probably muster up enough protective saliva, and I suspect that there are some innocents out there who wish that they had not agreed to lick the spoon. So now you know something about the... Uh, Leighton Frost Effect. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. All right, let's hit the lines. And I think Tony has been waiting. Tony. Good afternoon, Dr. Schwartz. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Dr. Schwartz, I have a problem. That's why I'm calling you, which came about during the week last week. I, on Tuesday of the, during the week, a couple of days ago, I felt like I had a cold. I get cold during the winter usually. But since there's the Omicron virus coming about, I was not sure if it's Omicron or a cold. You know what's going on. You know what's happening now. Yes. Well, I, I think you can at this point uh, assume that it could be Omicron. But there's one big problem. I, 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 you see, I have to know. You see, I can't go for the booster if it's Omicron. And I also can't. I'm, I'm trying to get a test, a rapid test. I, mean, I, I applied for it. I asked for it a month ago. I called the pharmacies. I left my name, et cetera, et cetera. And they never called me back with it. And I called them. They said that they didn't get it in. And right. So I have to get uh, a rapid test to, in order to get a booster. If if it's, I want to know for sure if it's Omicron or not. If I get a rapid test, I would know more. The rapid the, test will not. No, no. The rapid test will not tell you if it's Omicron or not. Well, how how would I know if I should go for the booster or not? That's a big problem right now. But why why would you not want to go for the booster? Because if if, if it's if, if some, I was told by, uh, I, I was told that if it's Omicron. You should, if you have it right now, you should not go for the booster for at least eight weeks. Uh, this, I'm, this may be. I'm not sure if that really is science-based, but you know, I've heard people uh, do say that. But uh, you have symptoms right now? 
Well, it's, I, ha- I, I had a, a lot of symptoms Tuesday until yesterday, more or less. Mm-hmm. I, right. I cold, it was a cold, but muscles hurt like I have a regular cold. Muscles yeah, hurt. Well, it, of course, it could be a regular cold, but it could also be Omicron because Omicron can present like that. Do you have any reason to to think that you've been in contact with someone who was positive? Well, I go out sometimes shopping here and there. That's the problem. Okay, but but uh, I mean, just passing by someone isn't going to do it. You'd you'd have to have a, a closer contact than that. It's in a store. It could take sometimes it takes up to two hours when I go. You know, it takes time. That's what I'm worried about. Yeah, it, it's look. It's impossible to say. You know, what, what, that's what I see. Doctor Sullivan mentioned if if it is. Um, Doctor Sullivan was talking. You should wait if you if you have if you think you had it. You should wait eight weeks, at least eight weeks. Around that time, okay, that's what he said, Dr. It, if 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 it is Omicron, yeah. then you don't have to really worry about the waiting because you will now have developed antibodies to it. But I'm not so sure that's with, the problem. 50, yes, 50. well, uh, you know, without without doing a PCR test, you cannot know, and the the rapid test will not tell you that. PCR test is the hospital test, am I right? Yes. Yes. Can, can, can I, if I would go to a hospital, would they give me a test? That's I the problem. I don't think so. What you say? I don't think so. You don't no, think so? No, no, I don't think so. So what should I? What, what, so at what, this what? point, just just don't do anything. Uh, wait it out. Uh, your symptoms hopefully will totally disappear, and then when the time comes, you get your your uh, booster. You don't have to worry about getting a booster now because if it is Omicron, you'll be protected anyway. You'll have antibodies to it. So get o- get over it, and then wait it out. I think that's that would be the most logical thing to do. Okay, anyway, let's let's go to Reed, who may have an answer to my question. Reed? Yeah, hi, uh, Dr. Joe. It's uh, always lovely to, uh, to talk to you. Um, I'm my guess that the statue that you mentioned that a gentleman was immortalized uh, in um, would be um, Ernest Rutherford. Yes, of course. It was Ernest Rutherford, and uh, who was a native New Zealander. But uh, the reason that there were three types of trees around that memorial uh, is yeah, because his, yeah. Career, yeah, his career spanned uh, from New Zealand to Canada to, to England. Of he course, was he worked in McGill. Yeah. Yes, he was originally educated in New Zealand. Then, of course, he came to Canada, and he was at McGill, where he did carry out uh, uh, his fundamental work where he showed uh, radio, basically demonstrated radioactivity and showed alpha mm-hmm. particles and beta mm-hmm. rays and gamma rays. Yep. But uh, then he went to, to England and he carried out his most famous experiment, the so-called gold foil experiment, where okay. he fired alpha particles at the gold foil and showed that they went right through, which suggested that atoms were mostly empty space except for a nucleus, which was a hard Wow. Mass. Wow, <laughs> and that's and that is what he got his Nobel Prize uh, mm. for. So not only is he New, New Zealand's most famous uh, uh, scientist, but he's of course one of the most famous scientists in the world uh, because his elucidation of radioactivity and the first person to essentially uh, split the atom. And in 1991, that bronze statue was erected, uh, showing him as a young boy. Uh, carrying a book entitled Arithmetic Primer. Uh, And uh, it it kind of uh, gives the message that here's the young boy uh, about to pass on into the world and uh, essentially make his his contribution. 
uh, it was his relatives and, and uh, friends who raised money uh, for this uh, memorial because they were very disturbed uh, when the house in which he had been born uh, near Brightwater in New Zealand had been torn down and it was uh, actually replaced by a pigsty. And they didn't think that this was uh, the appropriate way to remember Ernest Rutherford. So they got enough money, they bought the land, they evicted the pigs and uh, presented the land to, uh, to the government as a site for a monument. And eventually this uh, monument was, uh, was built. And uh, it is one of the big tourist attractions in, in New Zealand. And uh, of course, it is also very meaningful for us here in Canada because uh, of his connection to, uh, to McGill and the work on radioactivity that he carried out. Uh, New Zealand, well, uh, rem yeah. Yeah, you you carry on his great legacy at McGill. We really appreciate oh no that. no the, the, <laughs> the only way that the only way we can be mentioned in the same sentence is that we both work at McGill. <laughs> no, he oh, was, don't be so he, humble. He was he was he was uh, uh, you know one of the uh, uh, top-notch scientists who, who ever lived. So his uh, birthplace being memorialized is is certainly uh, something that uh, needed uh, to be done. We do have here at McGill a, a small Rutherford Museum in the Physic Building, which has some of the artifacts uh, from that era, uh, some of the equipment that uh, uh, that he used. Uh, it's I, I don't think right now it's open to visitors, of course, because of, of COVID, but uh, they do have some uh, very interesting uh, devices that uh, Rutherford uh, actually used. And he also cooperated with Saudi, who was a chemist here at McGill, who uh, eventually also got the Nobel Prize. Rutherford, of course, also got the Nobel Prize back in, uh, in uh, 1908, I think uh, it was. And uh, so, yeah, there is that, that bronze statue in Brightwater, New Zealand. And there's another way that uh, New Zealand has remembered him. Do you know what that is? No. Oh, no. It's on their, no, no. On their it currency, actually. It's on oh, the wow. currency. Yeah, New Zealand has a $100 banknote, and uh, that features... That's uh, very nice. <laughs> yes. I mean, you, to get your face on, on money, uh, that shows that uh, you really did have some uh, accomplishments. New Zealand is actually a, a fascinating place. I, I had the chance to visit there a few years ago, and uh, uh, I don't think that you can see as uh, diverse scenery uh, as you can see in, in New Zealand, you know, from the Southern Alps, which, which uh, you know, gigantic, beautiful uh, mountains, uh, where uh, uh, one of those mountains actually uh, is where many uh, prospective climbers of Everest come to practice because it is so similar. And then, you know, I mean, uh, you, you, you have the hot springs. They have the largest hot spring in the world because New Zealand sits uh, on, on a site at the bottom of the ocean that, that uh, basically is volcanic. So you have these fantastic hot springs and uh, all kinds of just amazing scenery in, in New Zealand. And of course, uh, one of their famous attractions now for the tourists is the site where Lord of the Rings was, uh, was filmed. And uh, that's still there, it can be, it can be viewed. Okay, so very good. You answered that question about Rutherford correctly. And uh, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll take some time out now and we'll be right back. 
science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. We had a correct answer to my question about Ernest Rutherford, so let me replace that question with the following. What is unusual about Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks? 5,000 pages of which actually survive. That in itself is pretty interesting. But what is unusual about his uh, notebooks? Give us a call, 514-790-0800 or text to 514-800. For those of you who are not familiar with the show, uh, I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society with a mandate to separate sense from nonsense in the world of, of science obviously very challenging uh, these days, as as you know, because of all the nonsense that is out there. But I want to call your attention to a bit of uh, fascinating nonsense and uh, quite amusing. I uh, just watched a documentary called Birds Aren't Real, <laughs> which is very, very clever. And uh, uh I think that there are a lot of people would be taken in by this, thinking that this is real. But actually what they're doing here is poking fun at all the misinformation that is out there. And this is the brainchild of a gentleman by the name of Peter McIndoe, young guy, he's, on the, he's in the early uh, 20s. And uh, I think he got sick of all of the, the nonsense about you know, the, the Flat Earth Society, the anti-vaxxers, the, the anti-climate change people. And uh, he came up with this uh, idea that birds aren't real. Uh, and uh, the the notion is that uh, once there were real birds, but the government, CIA, and everyone else involved, has actually systematically killed off all the birds and replaced them with mechanical ones, essentially with drones that can uh, spy on the population. And uh, when you watch this uh, uh, video, uh, you can find it easily. You just go to YouTube and put in uh, birds on, on trail. I think you'll be entertained. But it also makes the point of the kind of, of ridiculous things that are out there that people do believe in and how it is possible to, to sound very, very scientific about some total lunacy as you can experience in this video of birds aren't uh, aren't real. Uh, I also put the connection on my Facebook page. You can go there. So if you go to Facebook, you just go to my page, you search for my name, and it will come up, and you can click on it. And incidentally, uh, there's always a lot of useful stuff that I try to put on the Facebook page. And, uh, of course, you can also get more information by going on our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS. And that's also where you can sign up for our free uh, weekly uh, newsletter. So anyway, I think that you will enjoy uh, watching this Birds Aren't Real uh, uh, video. There's also a very good article that was written about this whole phenomenon uh, in the New York Times. And it's just amazing how it, it took off. Uh, something that is, is just absolutely ridiculous, uh, although maybe not quite as ridiculous as QAnon, but but 
totally ridiculous and yet uh you know it can be made to sound uh logical and i suspect that there were some people uh, who were taken in by this i mean one would hope not because it sounds just so ridiculous that all birds have been replaced by mechanical uh drones and that uh we may be watching the birds and at the same time they are watching us. But anyway, take a look at this video uh, because it is very cleverly done and it's a good spoof on, on what is going on in the world uh, now. I think we have Nicholas on the line. Nicholas? Hey, uh, Schwartz. Uh, is it Dr. or Mr. Schwartz? Whatever you like. Okay, guys. I'm... You, 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 can, you can call me anything. No, I just wanted to be respectful. That's all. I'm sorry. I came to a blind wall. And yes. I was like, what do I call this guy? Well, I, I do have a PhD in chemistry, so. There you go. Okay, doctor. All right. Uh, I've been listening to the, attentively for the last half hour or so to your show, and I just wanted to uh, explain to those people who are somewhat close-minded in regards to this uh, this COVID in the sense that I'm just going to tell you my story and basically people will kind of think twice and say, hey, I'm in not bad shape compared to this guy. Basically, I am on, uh, I'm, uh, I have multiple sclerosis. I had my third vaccine shot and basically on my second, no, sorry, on my first vaccine shot from Pfizer, I had a little problem. I had a little side effect, and they decided to diagnose me with uh, Bell's palsy. But then, mm -hmm. you know, things happen. And going back to all this, you know, basically people are forgetting, well, when these people were born, didn't their parents take their babies to the doctors for the vaccine shots? And the vaccine shots back then, I don't think they were as accurate or as tested as they are now. So people might think to us, hey, how come I didn't get this? How come I didn't get this? Because your good parents gave you a vaccine shots, as obviously I think your parents gave you vaccine shots when you were born. So there's, 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 there's like people are not really paying attention or the social media is really... Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are opposed to those child vaccinations as well but, because they have this nonsensical idea that it is somehow linked to autism. So when it comes it to vaccination, there? well, it was because of a ridiculous paper published in The Lancet by Andrew Wakefield, a former gastroenterologist, uh, who, uh, in order to try to defraud some insurance companies, concocted a, a, a faulty trial in which he claimed to have shown a link between autism and the MMR vaccine. But unfortunately, a lot of people believed in this, and uh, it resulted in, in epidemics of measles that we hadn't seen for, for decades. So there, there is a huge anti-vax movement out there, uh, and that was there before COVID ever came around. But you, but you said that you had a personal experience. What, uh, what was that? Well, the personal experience from the COVID, just to let you know, uh, I was on Pfizer and uh, I was uh, taken to the hospital because I wasn't feeling too well. And then they found out that uh, my left side of my face was kind of paralyzed. I was doing like Jean Chrétien imitation. Right. But, yeah. Well, this is, uh, yeah, this is the classic presentation of Bell's palsy. <clears throat> which is a rare condition 
it's not limited to the COVID vaccine. I mean, this can happen with any vaccine. It can happen without a vaccine as well. The condition usually resolves quite quickly. How long did it take for yours to resolve? Uh, with the symptoms, let's say the symptoms uh, took about two months. Yeah. And uh, I, I think we should point out that while that is a possible consequence of the COVID vaccine, it is far more likely that you're going to develop Bell's palsy if you actually contract the disease, because that also is a springboard for uh, Bell's palsy, more so than the vaccine itself. So the side effects of the vaccine are very rare. The benefits of the vaccine are, are being demonstrated day to day because we see that the vast majority of, of, of people in serious uh, conditions in hospitals are the unvaccinated. So um, I'm, I'm glad that you got over the uh, uh, Bell's uh, palsy and that uh, you sing the praises of the vaccine, as I think we should uh, all be doing, uh, much to the concern of the anti-vaxxers who are out there. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. All right, I think Dario may have an answer to one of my questions. Uh, you're on the line. Hi, Dr. Joe. Thank you Hi. for taking the call. I really enjoy your show. I listen to it every single uh, weekend, you know. And, Thank uh, you. Is the answer that uh, he wrote his uh, works basically backwards and they could only be yeah. read using mirrors? Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, he had this right. remarkable uh, talent, which is what it is, to, to uh, write backwards and uh, uh, he did this fluently, you know, and uh, I... I not sure exactly what the point was, uh, uh, but it could only be read by mirrors. I mean, Da Vinci was, of course, a, a remarkable man, quite aside from uh, his artistic talent. And, you know, obviously we know him most because of the Mona Lisa. But he had ideas for a bicycle, for a tank, a machine gun, a folding bed, a parachute, contact lens, believe it or not, and a water-powered alarm clock. Now, he didn't build any of these, but uh, he drew uh, extremely accurate uh, diagrams of how these things would be uh, constructed. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, some of these uh, eventually were made by, by others as, as models. And his parachute, for example, would have worked. Uh, he had a bicycle that, that really could have worked. So he really was something... But there's some another aspect of, of Da Vinci that, that uh, hardly ever gets mentioned, and I think people uh, don't know about this, is that he carried out a number of autopsies, which was quite rare in those days. But he wanted to be very, very accurate in his paintings. So he wanted to know uh, all the musculature of the body so that he could paint it accurately. And when he did these autopsies, uh, he was actually the first person ever to describe arteriosclerosis because he did an autopsy on a 100-year-old man and he found that the arteries were withered, shrunken, and desiccated. That's how he described it. And he also did an autopsy on a two-year-old child and found that the arteries were supple and, and, and healthy. So, you know, there a long, long time before doctors ever considered arteriosclerosis, Da Vinci had actually described it. 
So he was indeed a, a, an absolutely fascinating uh, man. Yeah, I, I read okay. somewhere that yeah. uh, it was uh, hypothesized that uh, the reason why he wrote backwards was uh, to sort of maintain a certain amount of uh, discretion and secrecy, you know, because in those days... I, I uh, guess so. I mean, that 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 would be logical, uh, but, you know, it's not like mirrors didn't exist at the time. <laughs> so, you know, people could have read it. But anyway, I, I think uh, obviously a very interesting phenomenon. All right. Thanks for that. And I think we have Ron on the line still. Ron? Yeah. Uh, hi, Dr. Joe. I, I was reading uh, in uh, some instructions to, for a recycling bin, and it said that you shouldn't um, put in uh, aluminum foil and aluminum pans. And I'm just wondering, why not? And, and do they d- decompose if you put them in a the landfill? That you shouldn't put in aluminum foil in recycling? Uh, that doesn't sound right. I mean, aluminum right. foil is one of the most recyclable materials. Maybe that was a mistake then, but but but, but aluminum oh, foil yeah, pads, I mean, they, they they go straight in. Okay, very good. Okay, well, I'm, yeah, uh, oh, I'll, for I'll, sure. I mean, uh, aluminum is one of those uh, metals that it essentially can be infinitely recycled because it can be melted down and uh, reformulated into whatever shape you want. Whereas, you know, when you look at uh, plastic recycling. There, are, Of course, there are all kinds of problems with plastic recycling. Uh, one of the major problems is that, obviously, there are many different kinds of plastics, and they cannot all be recycled the same way. You don't recycle uh, polyethylene the same way that you would uh, uh, recycle uh, a polyester. They need separate technologies, which means that they need to be separated, uh, and that is quite challenging. Much of that, believe it or not, is done by hand uh, by people who who stand by this uh, uh, assembly line and uh, just uh, separate the different plastics by by eye. Uh, there is some machinery also which separates plastics based on on how they float in water, but separation is is indeed a big problem. And uh, then, when you recycle plastics, I mean there are uh, ways to do that. Uh, if they are broken down into their component molecules, which you can do. So, for example, polyethylene can be broken down to ethylene, which then can be reformulated into brand new polyethylene. But the the second version is never quite as strong as the original. So uh, eventually you you can no longer recycle it because the the properties of material are not good enough. Whereas with aluminum, you can always uh, recycle it, no matter how many times you melt it and reformulate it, it it, uh, it doesn't lose any anything. Uh, today, of course, uh, aluminum is part of our life. Uh, it has become a, a quite a cheap metal, but that wasn't always the case. Uh, aluminum actually used to be uh, more expensive than gold. When uh, uh, Napoleon III Uh, who ruled France, uh, he would have uh, uh, usually gold cutlery for his everyday meals. But whenever he had very special guests, they would be served with aluminum cutlery because at that time, that was uh, uh, more highly prized than gold. So, yeah, aluminum certainly should be recycled. Okay? All right. So we've... We've had, uh, I think we've had uh, answers to uh, uh, all of my questions. Well, no, we didn't have an answer to the question about bad gas, which is uh, the stuff that is left over when you burn uh, sugar cane. And uh, so maybe, you know, let, let me talk about that uh, a little bit. It's an interesting word, bad gas, B-A-G-A-S-S. 
And uh, obviously, there's a lot of sugarcane that is produced in, in the world uh, because the world consumption of sugar is very high, obviously much too high. We consume way too much uh, sugar, but uh, uh, you know, it's out there, that's, that's for sure, and it's pr produced in, in huge, uh, huge amounts. When you take this stuff that is left over after the, the sugar has been extracted, uh, this stuff can be burnt. And it actually serves as a very good fuel. Uh, it's uh, mostly cellulose, uh, but 50% of this is cellulose. Some of it is hemicellulose, some of it is lignin. Anyway, the chemistry of this is, is, is quite well known. And it burns very, very well. Well, anything that burns, of course, produces carbon dioxide. And uh, that is an issue these days, uh, obviously, because we talk about uh, global warming and global warming is due to the uh, increasing concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, of course, there are some uh, climate change deniers uh, who say that, uh, no, this is just a natural phenomenon. But the fact is that uh, when you take a look at all of the published papers uh, about uh, climate change and uh, among the scientists who offer an opinion about uh, whether or not humans are involved, 97% of all climate change scientists who have written on the issue uh, will say that uh, CO2 is going up because we are putting more of it into the environment and is due to human activity. Uh, transportation, obviously, anytime that we burn gasoline, uh, that burns to produce carbon dioxide and, and, and water. And uh, agriculture, of course, also produces uh, carbon dioxide, uh, numerous kinds of industrial processes, and of course, energy production. In, in much of the world, in order to produce electricity, uh, you burn fossil fuels or natural, uh, natural gas. <clears throat> All right. So the question was, why is burning the residue from sugarcane uh, more environmentally friendly than burning petroleum? Uh, well, the, I think, reason should be obvious, because when that sugarcane was growing, it was taking up carbon dioxide from the, uh, from the atmosphere. And when you are burning it, you're just putting back the carbon dioxide that was used through photosynthesis when the sugar cane was, uh, was growing. This uh, bagasse, the stuff left over from the sugar cane, uh, not only can be burned for fuel, but it can also be used to make pulp for paper. It can also be used these days to make biodegradable tableware and, and food boxes. And there are some companies now that deliver food in these containers that are, are biodegradable. Uh, of course, uh, there's a bit of a problem there because it is biodegradable under the right conditions, uh, not necessarily if you just leave it out in your uh, backyard. All right. Anyway, the uh, final point here is, is that the machinery to turn bagasse into pulp was patented in 1952 by Clarence Birdseye, who is also the man who basically was the inventor of the flash freezing process for processed food. And that is it. We have run out of time once again, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>